When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. an unnatural phenomenon to some degree. Uh, it's something which came about rather uh, accidentally, in a sense, in the 18th century. The orchestra that we describe now as the one familiar to us and was brought about by rather wealthy people suddenly deciding that the small groups they had could be extended. They found they enjoyed large sounds and sounds got larger and larger in the 19th century got even larger again with great concert halls. And I think uh, the modern listener and, and uh, viewer or a person who goes to concerts, they're primarily looking for, you know, the excitement of a big sound which can also contrast with very intimate sound. Dr. Gerard Victory, Director of Music at Radio Telefish Aaron. What you're, you're really looking for is a largish group of people, all of them fine musicians, but they must be, must be good musicians, but they must also have a wish to work in concert, to work together, to subordinate themselves individually to the total result. And they must have an esprit de corps, a certain pride in the group. Uh, they must have a discipline. They must uh, have a common purpose. And really, some of these things are not as easy to obtain as you might think. They're contradictions in terms, because if you're a good performer and you spend a lot of years learning an instrument... I think you will end up feeling that you want to show off, do your own thing, be a soloist, and at the same time you've got to subordinate yourself. I think this is, um, uh, if you like, countered or uh, resolved, uh, the dilemma is resolved, uh, by a very good conductor is the most important ingredient, a personality who impresses this ob objective on people, gets them to subordinate it and get pride and joy out of subordinating their their personal uh, thing, as it were, their personal quirks and mannerisms of playing. And uh, really, one is working all the time to establish that rapport between a conductor, not necessarily only one conductor, but certainly the principal conductor and uh, the players, to achieve a unified objective where their own talents are subordinated to this effect. And, and at the same time, they don't do it grudgingly, but get a lot of pleasure and enjoyment out of it, which is very important. In Ireland, our symphony orchestra started in a very small way. Terry O'Connor, one of its first members, recalls. He started off not with the idea of an orchestra at all. As far as I can remember, there were four people involved, and there was an advertisement in the paper, and Rosalind Dowse 
applied and Eileen McNeese applied and um, Christy, no, um, Kathleen Andrews applied. And as far as I know, it was just two violins and a cello and a piano. Mm. I'm not quite sure whether the piano came at that stage. At all events, eventually, Kitty well, where, did you, where did you rehearse? Uh, they were in the GPO. Oh, I see. From the very beginning, they were mm. in the GPO. And <coughs> I wasn't there at that time, and they went, they had this court, trio, or quartet, or whatever you call it, um, going. And I had a call from Dr. O'Brien. He know was the musical director, Vincent. He was uh, the musical director, yes, mm. from the beginning. Mm. He was appointed. And of course, Vincent O'Brien had an awful lot to do at that time at the cathedral. He was yes. the organist there yes. at Choirmaster yeah. and everything. Anyhow, he, yes, Palestrina. And <coughs> he asked me to come in and uh, talk to him, you <laughs> see. So I went in and um, we had a long chat. I was at that time, I don't know, I probably was playing in a picture as I can't remember exactly what I was doing. But anyhow, I said to Vincent, but what about a viola? Mm -hmm. Because I said, you can't have a string quartet without a viola. Mm -hmm. So that was an idea, mm. and uh, so it began from very small. It began things, from really. very small beginnings, you see. And Maud Eakin was the first yes. Viola Maud yeah. Davin, yeah. as she was. No, she was Maud Eakin, mm -hmm. I think. Then I'm not quite sure. Yeah. And um, it was quite a while. And then Vincent was getting more and more dissatisfied with uh, how it was going on, and they decided to. Uh, get a small orchestra going mm -hmm. and at that time they had people ready to sponsor programs. Terry O'Connor became the first leader of the symphony orchestra and she was one of several women who have had that distinction. At 83 she listens to the RTSO of today. Actually at the moment I think the orchestra is absolutely first class and I've heard very very fine performances as well as some not so good mm. but mostly I I, th I get great pleasure from listening to them and seeing how it has developed. Mm. Of course, they now have several conductors. This was one of the problems, I think, always. If you're um, trying to run an orchestra or even a small chamber orchestra, getting somebody who has imagination as well as the direction and the, the, the authority mm. that's necessary for conducting... As the orchestra was gradually built, musicians came from many sources. Richard Purse joined to play the bassoon. I was uh, in the army for about 14 years, from 1923, and uh, straight into, on an invitation from uh, Dr. Kiernan. And then uh, I went in the, to the orchestra then, against Colonel Brassie's w wishes, and uh, his assistant director, uh, Sarsweig, he was uh, advised me all along to go in, not to mind Colonel Brassey. Mm. And uh, the two of them were, you know, the one was against me going, and the other was advised me looking forward to the future, do you see? So I went in, although the money didn't make a great difference. Mm. I was earning in a... In a up around the five pound 
Mark in the army, and I went into Radio Ireland then, and it was much the same. Only I only worked a few it's hours a day. It's unbelievable now, you know. Yes, about five five pound a week it was, and then there was a tax stop. There was that. That was uh, the Radio Ireland. Uh, uh, yes, it was. Uh, it wasn't a full orchestra. It was a studio orchestra. Yeah. yeah. Well, before that, I played at the very first place. Down in Denmark Street, oh, yes, in over Lee's uh, furniture mm-hmm. place, I played there, and there was the, the there was yeah. a group uh, Terry O'Connor's um, yes. Cleary's Instrumental Trio, mm-hmm. and she used to bring in a couple of fellows from the army, mm-hmm. woodwind players, yeah. bassoon, clarinet, noble, mm-hmm. and we used to climb up the couple of flights of stairs, <laughs> and we do our stuff, and. Uh, I think we used to get five bob a rehearsal, five shillings own money, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, we had to wait months for that. It had to go to the army, and we were paid from the army yeah. by cheque. Alice Bruff was in the Gate Theatre Trio before joining the violins. Well, around about the time the Italians came, six or seven Italians, and Renzo. Yes, and Renzo Marchioni. Yeah. And and he he was a marvellous thing. He still writes to you. Oh, he? he had such a dignified presence too when he came out to lead the orchestra. Yeah. He was a nice man, yeah, wasn't he? Very nice man. Very nice, nice to work with. Mm. He still. Writes I don't to think you, he ever really had a, a cross word with anybody. Yes. Very dignified. Oh, figure. very wonderful technique. Yes. Well, did he? Can you remember? I can't remember very much about Renzo because I think I was in England. But did he um, pay much attention to the back desks? Well, he never sort of pounced on anybody yes. but yeah. uh, he studied his own parts so well that you feel compelled yes. to and was he meticulous about the bowing and oh that? yes yes. yes. Christine Fagan, a cellist recalls an interesting development the first person that introduced modern music and I'm not speaking about Irish music mm. was Martinon yes, introduced yes. Martinon yeah. He introduced the orchestra mm. to modern music, mm-hmm. and as the first La Mer and all yes, that, they were new to us. Yes, they were. The and uh, then the next person to come along and do it was um, Jean Arreau. Oh yes, I've forgotten about him. Jean Arreau. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether I'm pronouncing yes, his name Arreda. correctly enough. Yes, Arreda. Yes. And then um, the next uh, Archie Potter, and of course Archie Potter. Well, that was in latter years. Mm. I mean, that wasn't yeah. so. Desperately but there were no indigenous Irish composers not, say, no, at that time, no. except Hamilton Harty, of course. I do remember. Well, that. I mean, Hamilton Harty and Field. And John Field. John but Field. It was with the Wild Geese. There was Jack Moran, of course. You remember the oh, marvellous yes, concert yes. in the capital. Yeah. And Jack Moran. And, and his son, and his violin concerto. Nancy, Nancy, Nancy Lord played. Yes, Nancy and played it very yeah, well. Played it very well, yes. And it was very good. Yeah. But that type of music didn't seem to take on with the Dublin public at all. It didn't. I no. think they just wanted the natural Irish music. Mm. And like we we did a lot of Irish music arranged by Dr. Larchet. Mm. We did a lot of Irish music arranged by Dr. Vincent O'Brien. Mm. And at that time I think the minister was Mr Little. Paddy Little, that's right. And yes, he yes. was very keen to extend the orchestra. Mm. But they hadn't got the players here. They hadn't mm. got enough. Mm. And this is how it started to get the continental players over. Yes. You see, they started with a few. Well, and then when you were in the orchestra, Christine, um, when you were cellist and with, with, with uh, Clive Twelpris was, was leading and the I was cellist section, and you were yes, deputy leader, yes. 
and that was in Henry Street. That's right. In the GPO. Yeah. And uh, do you remember, there were a lot of conductors coming from the Army School of Music. There was Michael Bowles, there was Arthur Duff, there was Dermot O'Hara, um, Jim Doyle. Yes. And the first one in was Jim. Jim Doyle. Jim Doyle. And he was made lieutenant. Mm. And then after Jim Doyle came... Uh, Dermot O'Hara? No, Dermot O'Hara. And he was made a lieutenant. Mm -hmm. And then after Dermot O'Hara came Michael Bowles. Yes. And he was made a lieutenant. I see. And then as there were two, I, I don't think there were very many more years than about two to three years with us. Mm. But they got their experience that way. And um, then they were made captain. Yeah, you see, whatever yeah. the rank is coming up in the but army. But all that time, place. all that time that, that you were that these were coming backwards and forwards from the from Portobello to to Radio Wern, uh, the orchestra never played in public, did it? Oh well, Michael Bowles, we must give Michael credit for. Oh, that was the, the symphony. Oh, he started with Mr. Little mm. to try and get the symphony uh, a, a full. These symphony were in the magic house. These are the magic house concerts. Yeah. These were magic. Now yeah. that's when I was leading because. Yeah. Clyde Twelfries was out sick a lot. Mm. You must remember, he, he came, came from the Halley, yes. he'd retired from the Halley, mm. and it was marvellous for me because he, I started with him, he was my teacher. Yes. And I felt sort of very humble and sort of quiet, Lovely, you know, having my own professor mm. beside him. I mm. thought it was a terrific honour, which of mm. course it was. Yes. Jean Noel was thrilled, don't get him over because she was mad yeah. about him. Yeah. And we had him for quite a few years and then he got into bad health mm. and he was in and out and in and out yes. and I was more leading then. Michael Bowles, a conductor with the army, joined RE in 1941 as acting director of music and conductor of the symphony orchestra. And since money is always short for orchestras, he recalls an incident at that time. Mr Joe Cremens and Seamus Brennan uh, Joe Cremens was the secretary so, of the Yes, he was secretary. He was in the of interim, the yes. department of Post and Telegraphs then. Mm. And we sat at a table across from the secretary of the Department of Finance and two officials. And at one stage of the early negotiations about the orchestra, Seamus Brennan said to um, Sean Moynihan, he said, Sean, you're not very constructive. And Sean said, it's not my business to be constructive. Now... It's a point of view uh, in, a, in the Department of Finance that I have great sympathy with, and I agree that it's not their, it's their business to um, keep control over uh, they must know where the characters like us. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, but at the same time, I must say that uh, I found them permissive. The big hurdle we had to get over was that um, previous to my coming to Radio Ireland, they used to give the occasional symphony, a uh, celebratory concert, perhaps two or three in the year at the most, and didn't work very well. Indeed, the year before I came, there was a concert with Hamilton Harty conducting and Solomon playing either the Emperor or the Tchaikovsky piano concerto, and they couldn't give away the tickets. And that would be in the Department of Finance. And where was that held? This was held in the Gaiety Theatre. In the Gaiety? And uh, perhaps it was just before the war. And um, when I came, what I was able to get over with the help of Cremens and O'Brennan was that if you gave six, if you announced six concerts, 
the publicity from one would carry over into the next and it probably a safer venture to give six than one. And uh, the Department of Finance accepted that idea. Mm. But we weren't able to do any celebrity concerts at that time because the war was on. But you had the public concerts in the Mansion House. We had them public concerts in the Mansion House. And uh, we, well, the first concert I remember, the celebrity was Charles Lynch, a very good celebrity mm. indeed. And I remember James Johnston came down from the top of his career at that time as Sir a tenor. Smith and Phyllis Sonic. And we had, oh, then we uh, expanded. We were able to, we found we were able to bring over artists from London. Mm. We had a very good relationship with Ibs and Tillett. Mm. And Myra Hess was here, wasn't she? Yeah. Myra Hess, Harriet Cohn, uh, Beatrice Harrison, that Beatrice gave the Harrison, first performance yes, of yes, the Elga, Jellicoe yes, yes. Charter. Mm. And, oh, we had practically all of them that time. Uh, mm. there was, and then later on, uh, we had, um, when the war was over, we began to bring in French musicians mm. and that. But the point was that we we were allowed a very small budget to begin with and then we were overspent a little and what did the orchestra cost in those days can you remember uh, I can tell you that we were allowed for the first series of concerts uh, the higher of the hall which was only five pounds the mansion house um, well we had to pay the extras that's to say making the orchestra up to more than 50 from mm. 26 people that had to come on the cost of the concert. Uh, the other cost, the fee of the solo pianist, the publicity, the programme cost, and that we were allowed £90 for that, I each see. concert. And we gradually um, overspent and apologised. <laughs> and, uh, well, we, I must say that we had sympathy to the Department of Finance, but we had to justify mm. every expansion bit by bit. Yeah. And the main thing in the end was we were obviously producing regularly full houses and had to ration the sales of tickets, and yeah. that then went to the capital. But the point was that we went, we, uh, we got what... What you wanted? ...from the Department of Finance. Yeah. Yes. A man who was much concerned with finance was Lorne O'Brien, then Secretary of the Department of Posts and Telegraphs. Was it difficult to get money? Yes, I think, of course, that we... Uh, Times were diff still difficult, very difficult after the war. Mm. But fortunately, in our point of view, of course, things were very satisfactory because after the war, of course, there were plenty of musicians around who mm. could be gotten for very little. Uh, in fact, the more I think of it, the more I'm amazed really at what we got away with for some of the musicians. The sort of money we're paying. Yes, uh, I remember, for instance, a man like Jean Martino, yeah. who made quite a hit when he came here. He was a conductor, yeah. He was here for some months. And uh, I remember it fell to, I don't know who actually did he negotiating with them, but I was in on it in some, in some respects. And uh, he was being given really peanuts, really, mm. you know. Can you remember yeah. the figure you can't? Well, I can't really, but I, w I would be surprised if I was paying him more than 40 pounds a month. Good heavens of God. It's incredible. Well, of course, we must always think again back in terms of... Oh, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What did you find the... Uh, still, he had very little, very little, relatively he had, little. He, he had just come out of prison. He'd been a 
prisoner of war. He'd been a prisoner of war during the war. He came here. He came here originally, I think, as a substitute for Charles Munch. Charles Munch, that's right. Munch was to have come to one of these Sunday concerts. I remember that. And rather late, we heard that Munch wasn't coming, but he was sending this pupil of his. And I think Munch. I think. I think. I think Martinon got some considerable value out of Dublin, apart from the money, because he, he hadn't, he, he obviously hadn't been a, up before, standing before an orchestra for a long no, time. He'd no. been a prisoner of war. Well, he told me himself that he learned all the Brahms symphonies. Well, I'm he sure he was, he was, was practising really on the orchestra. Mm, yeah. He grew up with the orchestra yeah. very much, didn't he? And of conductor Michael Bowles, he says. I must say, in fairness to Michael Bowles, that he, uh, he was very active in some sp- very splendid ways. I think it was he who put up the idea to me, which I very gladly accepted to start those summer schools, those professional summer schools yes. in Dublin. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they they were they were they were they were set up really to uh, cure a rather chronic situation in which the there were very few up and coming young players, mm-hmm. instrumentalists, mm-hmm. and so on, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we brought people in. Uh, perhaps it would have been, it might have followed from that after some time that some of the best people would go abroad, as indeed I think some of them did. Didn't Geraldine yes, O'Grady really go as a result of the, the schools, of yes. summer well, schools? I think the O'Brien Johnson. girl went. Um, Mary, O'Bri- Mary O'Brien went. She went. She went. She went to Paris too. She was in the conservatoire mm. in Paris with Geraldine O'Grady, I yeah. think. And we were, we were encouraging them, we were trying to do the best we could. I did you hope then that these people would come back to the orchestra, as Geraldine did in fact, and become leader? Oh of yes, well of course we did, yes, mm-hmm. we hoped we'd get some of them back anyhow. We were only at the beginning of things, mm-hmm. when again another economy campaign uh, erupted, and we had to cut out those summer schools, yeah. which was a great loss. They were a and terrible we, loss. And we went back then to the old business of an occasional summer school in UCD or something mm. of that sort. Well, there was a summer school, as far as I remember, of conducting in Phoenix Hall. Do you remember that? Well, that was that and was, was part that good, was part of the summer of the school. Same scheme. That was part of the same scheme. It yeah, was exactly. Very very good. That one. It was, of course. We had uh, we had uh, Martin, no? and we had uh, I think we had Ishustet. Ishustet, yes. Ishustet was here at the and time. And these two men, of course, became really very eminent. Very didn't famous, they? yes. Very yes. famous. Well, very good men. Ramada Farrakhan, a later controller of radio. I remember Michael Bowles very well. Worked with him for a number of years. Michael Bowles, of course, had considerable, uh, has considerable organising ability and uh, is remembered for the way he, as the first full-time director of music and conductor, the way he organised the music department and the public concerts. The symphony orchestra, in its several stages, has had many homes from Denmark Street to the top of the GPO, to the Phoenix Hall and St Francis Avis Hall, before moving last year to the National Concert Hall. Among the many developments in the years between, however, was Fockno Hanran, who became Director of Music after Michael Bowles, and he set out to establish a second orchestra. I was firmly convinced that one body of players could not meet, could not meet the varied needs of broadcasting in the years ahead. And... Uh, about the light orchestra, uh, apart from its special contribution to programmes, it opened up an entirely new field for Irish composers and arrangers. And over the years, a varied repertoire uh, of works commissioned, especially in the field of Irish music. 
even in the realm of the symphonic music, uh, I always encouraged this. And uh, in fact, I made a point of uh, having, if possible, one Irish work at least in every public concert. And uh, I recall also uh, that it was I who uh, initiated the Carolyn Prize for Composition, uh, a competition which uh, yielded some very interesting works over the years. Now, I firmly believed in the importance of having a direct contact between the orchestra and the public, and also in having concerts at regular times so as to encourage the, the concert going and uh, the concert listening habit. Now, over a number of years, the Phoenix Hall concerts lay the foundation, I believe, for the resumption of public concerts. And they also, and this is something important, they established a rapport between the orchestra and the audience, and I think brought the best out of the musicians. The musicians were no longer playing to an unseen audience, and to my way of thinking at least, uh, this was something very, very important. Many famous continental musicians began to come to Dublin, among them Stravinsky, the great Stravinsky, and he is remembered by Leo Donnelly, a long-time manager of the orchestra. One had to be conscious of this fact, and one had to excuse the little foibles which men of his calibre take unto themselves. But all things being equal, it was one of the great joys of my life. I had the pleasure of meeting him at the airport when he arrived. That was part of my duties. And he arrived, as I say, on Prince with his wife, Madame Stravinsky, with his agent, Madame Ampanoff, and with his assistant conductor and biographer, Robert Kraft. They stayed for a period of, I think, of about, uh, about a week. They were in, uh, there was, uh, at that time, there was a festival that had been arranged by RT, or Radio Evans, as it then was, in the, the, the Delphi Cinema in Abbey Street. Uh, a concert on the Sunday, a concert on the Thursday, and a final concert on the following Sunday. The first concert was the Stravinsky concert, in which Robert Kraft uh, conducted the first half, which was the Fairy's Kiss, and then uh, Stravinsky himself took over after the interval with the Von Himmelhoch and uh, the Symphony of Psalms, in which, by the way, Junior Redden and Charles Lynch were the uh, solo pianists. But that, that was the event, but it was, it's the time of his, uh, his presence in the city which caused me the, the most joy and, and no bit of distress. <laughs> there were several engagements arranged for, arranged for him, one of which was uh, uh, an interview, if that's the right word, it isn't, a meeting with the President of Ireland, the then President of Ireland, Yemen de Valera. And the meeting was arranged, shall we say, for 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, a small party was invited. Uh, Stravinsky and his wife and one or two people from Radio Wedding. and uh, I was it was my job to collect him from the hotel and take him up to the park and then to wait, to wait until the interview was over and take him across the park to the American Embassy where a luncheon party had been arranged uh, I told um, Stravinsky that I would call for him on the day at half past ten giving us a half an hour to go to the Oris and Uthron you could do it at that time at that time when I arrived, he was waiting in the foyer, and I said, uh, is Madam ready? Oh, she's going off to get her hair done. <laughs> Collapse of stout party. <laughs> what was I going to do? The President of Ireland, 
was waiting on Stravinsky. Stravinsky was with me. It was time to go. I had to make a decision. I could. Yeah. There was no court of appeal, so I said, "Okay, let's go." Oh, good for you. And we went, and he had his appointment. And when I, somewhere during the course of the the morning, Mad, uh, Madame Stravinsky turned up. Not an artist that around because by that time the interview was over. But at the embassy where there was a luncheon party. Incidentally, there was a photograph taken, which I remember on one of the newspapers. I think it was the Irish Times, of the uh, that meeting between the. The two men between, De and between the president yeah. and the yeah. and the composer. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. He was a, an amazing character. Tibor Paul was director of music at that time. Tibor Paul was the man who was responsible uh, for his for people of his eminence coming to this country. People like like uh, Menuhin, Rostropovich, mm-hmm. Savinsky, and, and so many solos of equal caliber. And what kind was it? What, what, what sort of attendance did you have at that at those concerts? Unhappily. Uh, that uh, that concert itself was well patronised, the Stravinsky concert, mm. but the other two concerts during the week which formed part of the music mm. festival were poorly attended. In fact, one of them had to be cancelled for lack of public support. That was Van Cliburn and... and um, no, no, the Van Cliburn one went, went ahead. ahead. But what about the one in Milstein and Pistolari in the middle of the week yeah. had to be abandoned. Pistolari, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, incredible. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. incredible. I mean, it's yes, unbelievable. Yeah. You drop a pin now and, and they'd come they, from... The ends of the earth. They'll come from all over the islands to to see and hear those people. Times have changed. A conductor who came in 1968 and subsequently toured with the orchestra, Albert Rosen, comments. Uh, In one sense, it's a full harmony in the leading desks. Yeah. And uh, uh, all of them are, it seems to be, uh, are going very well together. And it is the same spirit, high intelligence, full technical equipment, and uh, a wonderful mood for musical world. And how do you think the strings balance with the wind? Um, this is a lasting problem which varies with the uh, composition of the strings players. Mm-hmm. When I arrived, there was qu- more strong players which have been much less in ensemble. There have been a couple of Hungarians, um, French, and which have been uh, outstanding players perhaps, but mm. not so good in ensemble as we have now. Mm. But uh, the sound production of a string ensemble can be modified very much by mm. rehearsing it. What will be the effect of moving into the National Concert Hall? I stopped to believe too much in acoustics, because the, what, uh, what uh, decides is the playing. If an orchestra plays well, it would sound very convincing, mm in the so-called bad acoustics and will sound the same in good. Mm-hmm. An orchestra which doesn't play very well will sound a bit better in good mm-hmm. acoustics, but actually it, the real thing won't change much. Yeah. Because it seemed to me in, in the last couple of concerts that I heard from you in the Gaiety yeah. were very much better that you had seemed to come to terms with the Gaiety acoustics. I yeah. don't know how you did it, but it was very much better. No, I, point of view of I, I'm acoustics. not so sure about this. As gaiety, as the theatrical uh, acoustics, has the effect that compact music, like mm. say all operatic overtures, sound very well because they are written for a pit orchestra. Mm. With the imagination by these composers, that they have to fill the sound by a lot of brass and wood and thick uh, string composition. Whereas pieces which are written with a fine hole in mind, like already Mahler has had better mm. holes for mm. his symphonies. Mm are much more in uh, lines and not so compact and accordic. Yeah. So uh, here is the difference. Mm. 
So it is from time to time it seems to be better or worse and also the playing is what yeah. is deciding. Yeah. Well, do you think that they now that they're really an all-purpose orchestra, they're a radio orchestra, they're a, a public orchestra, shall we say, a national orchestra, and they're also an opera orchestra. How do you feel about them having three dimensions as well? Oh, marvelous. This is the best an orchestra it's can do. It's very good for them. That they play so many styles and that they are never really just in one level, but that they do all this. The best for an orchestral player is to listen to a singer when he sings with him the aria. And this he can apply also in many cases in symphonic music. Mm. Because uh, after all, this music is the same, but just the function is different. Of course, the flexibility in opera is much wider mm. than it seems to be in symphonic music. Of course, if you do a bit of uh, this operatic uh, glamour in a uh, symphonic, it doesn't matter at all. It mm. gives it much more flavor. Mm. Yeah, I see. Well, would you think that the orchestra as it stands now is... a uh, for our size of country, is is as good as you'll get. For this um, size of country, and for the for the money that that, that is being paid, yeah, is available. Yeah, I think this is a wrong uh, comparison. Small countries can have excellent orchestras. Mm. Big countries have poor orchestras. It depends much more on the technique, how it is run, okay. and the intention, and on the general cultural background of this particular country. It's hard to give uh, uh, comparisons. Say very rich countries have not very great orchestras, I won't say which, but this country could um, (laughs) humbly say do much more. Not so much in the money sense, but in uh, the general cultural attitude, which is very high. Principal conductor of the RTESO today is Carmen Pierce, and the leader is Audrey Park, the fourth woman to hold that post. Geraldine O'Grady was an earlier leader. From my first three year, three years as leader, we were in the Phoenix Hall, mm. and we were all very distressed when we moved to the Francis Xavier Hall. Why were you distressed? Because it was such um, a dreary place to play in, and I know for a fact that every morning, you know, when I, I would wake and, and realize that I had to spend five or six hours a day in this uh, hall, it used to depress me. I mean, a cloud would descend upon me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I didn't. But do you think it's really any better now? Well, Thibaut Paul at the time did what he could with it, mm. but I don't think it's any better now. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> yes. But well, I have never liked the hall, you know, at all. Yes, yes, I've never yeah. liked it. And she says of her leadership, I was appointed. Actually, it was it was quite a, a shock to me because I didn't really envisage uh, orchestra playing at all mm. at that stage because I my whole life was geared towards so solo was, work. Yes. Yeah. And they. I remember Faulkner O'Hanahan, mm-hmm. who was music director at the yeah. time, invited me in mm. for a chat. And then he said that they would like me, they mean, I suppose the authority at the time, would like me to um, to uh, take up leadership of the orchestra. And um, I was uh, flattered, but I was a bit worried at the time because I was very well, young. You were very young, yes. I was very young. You see, yeah. I was only in my middle 20s and I felt that with all these, you know, yes. older people yes. that they yeah. mightn't take to... And you hadn't really um, played around, as it were, in orchestras at all. Well, I had actually. I'd done a lot of orchestral work because I was leader of the um, the International Students' oh, Orchestra of course, in Paris, that, and we had yeah. done a lot of touring with them. I'd toured, you know, Germany three mm-hmm. times, and we'd given a lot of concerts in mm-hmm. Paris. We gave mm-hmm. um, regular concerts about every two weeks. Mm-hmm. So we'd done quite a lot of repertoire, and of course in the conservatory then we did an awful lot, it was compulsory. Yes, you had to we do it. We did a lot of work. Well, how did you work. find Radio Wearing when you came to it? The, well, the orchestra, I mean. <coughs> well, I think, you know, myself, that that period, 
um, 60 to, to 64 was a kind of a golden era in music in Dublin because and I would I my own opinion is that this came from Tiba Paul because as you remember mm-hmm. he was a, a most enthusiastic mm-hmm. person and very dynamic and he, he generated enormous enthusiasm mm-hmm. and energy and and uh, among the musicians and yes. among the public he had yes. great charisma Terrific. And there was a great excitement um, among the concert-going public and among the shopkeepers and mm-hmm. the ordinary people in the street. And how does Dr Gerard Victory, Director of Music, see the future? I feel that in Ireland uh, the tendency will be more and more for the symphony to be a personal, visible entity as well as a broadcasting one in perhaps some greater measure. The opening of the concert hall, which is one of the best things that has happened in music in Ireland in, in recent years, uh, certainly will accelerate this process, and it is uh, so doing. What our task will be, I think, is that the special tasks of our own orchestra will not be too greatly overlooked. There is a tendency that in putting on the great spectacle, which I think will be the future of symphony in the world generally, more towards this maybe than even in the past, and this has happened in films, for instance, which have gone through the same sort of process, perhaps a bit sooner, that the thing which survives is the very major spectacle which draws people from their homes away from television, uh, obliges them to part with a few pounds, to enjoy something that is unique. I think we will and are moving towards that, and its future and survival will depend a good deal upon this. And I think side by side with it, in such a small country, we must not overlook the marvellous work which this orchestra has done in developing Irish composition, in encouraging Irish soloists, in uh, reaching into the homes of everyone, in uh, its own performances, in its uh, documentaries, in things linked with it by way of talks and illustrations, making people aware of all types of music in Ireland. This has been a great achievement, and we wouldn't like to see this uh, falter. But I would say that that... Uh, continuance will depend to a great extent on increasing impact both visually and in spectacle and in uh, in the appeal it can make to very involved audiences really anxious to pay and support such a thing for the pleasure and thrill and excitement they're going to get out of it Uh, that is the, the principal trend I would see and I hope that economic Uh, difficulties uh, which do exist will not impair it. I feel if the effort is good enough, they won't.